0: The reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 6. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ashley. Good morning, Redemption. Uh, Don't start the video yet. Um, How many of you have ever played the game of life? You, You know the game? I remember as a kid playing that game, and, uh, you know, at the very beginning, when, when uh, your career and salary are determined, and you, and you never wanted to land on teacher, right? Right? Isn't that ironic? Think about uh, the work that teachers do, the work that Ashley has done in Maryville and now at Great Hearts. And uh, anyway, I just felt the spirit leading me to bring that up, and I have no clothes for it, so let's just move on now. <clears throat> Isn't it wonderful when the Holy Spirit moves? Yes. So um, I want to show you a video. It's only 45 seconds. And uh, what you need to know about the video is uh, I, I took this uh, a few months ago. Uh, in uh, the, the guy's name is Jimmy Dellbridge. He's affectionately known as Jimmy Dell, And he's 82 years old, and God has gifted him in incredibly unique ways. I took this video in his uh, living room a couple months ago. I want to show it to you and then talk to about it. Jimmy Dell is originally from Arizona, uh, central Arizona, uh, grew up there. He is a self taught uh, musician. He's played with Johnny Cash and with Aretha Franklin. Uh, and then God got a hold of his life and turned him into a, uh, an evangelist and a revivalist. And he lives right here in Arcadia. Uh, he attends the uh, church, I can never remember the name R- Revolution Church? Uh, it, Ren- renovation? renovation. I always call it Revolution. They renovated and started a revolution. I think that's why. Anyway, so Renovation Church, the Nazarene Church on uh, 24th Street north of Camelback. He's been a part of that church for years and years and years. Um, but we're going to bring him in for our next th- uh, Theology Thursday event, Thursday, uh, November 1st. It'll be from 6 to 8. We're going to serve dinner. And our vision is that we're going to put, uh, we've rented a piano for him to play. because uh, uh, we just We wanted a nice piano for him to be able to play. We're going to put it right in the middle. Uh, we're going to have round tables around to eat, and then after we've, we're done eating, I'm going to interview him and let him tell some stories about his uh, camp. He's still a revivalist. He still goes travels around uh, part-time now, not full-time, uh, doing revivals, so he preaches and he plays the music uh, doing all of that. He'll do a few Hank Williams songs. He'll do a, some old-time gospel hymn songs. We'll sing along with him. We'll interview him and, and let him tell some stories, so I would really encourage you to come. Uh, to that night that 'll be really, really fun so that 's no- November first, Thursday night, November first. I want you to just mark your calendar for another uh, another time. This is going to be Sunday, November eleventh uh, This should be high attendance day at uh, R- Redemption Arcadia because Sean Myers is going to be coming back from Redemption Peoria to preach yeah it 's okay to clap clap for Sean that 's right yeah. So I, te- I think I told you, I text Sean and I said, hey, it's about time for you to come back again and preach. And he said, yeah, Arcadia needs some revival. I'd be happy to come and help you guys out. So you know how he is. So uh, we are in the last of the Ephesians uh, today. After 40, 41 weeks in Ephesians, we're wrapping things up. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the letter's conclusion, which Ashley uh, read today, and then offer like just a review of the last 40 weeks, uh, taking a section out of each uh, chapter. Uh, You heard the reading. This is a typical first century Greek letter-ending salutation. Fairly typical. Uh, Paul dresses it up uh, as a Christian uh, in Christ. and, And one of the things he does is he commends Tychicus to them. Tychicus is the one who's going to be taking the letter from the prison in Rome to the church in Ephesus so it can be read out loud in Ephesus. This was one of the most common ways to get a letter from point A to point B in the first century. And so I would just say that as much as we like to ridicule and make fun of the United States Postal Service... I'm pretty sure it's a lot better than what they had going on in the first century Mediterranean world and and maybe just cut them a a little bit of uh, slack. Uh, And Tychicus and Paul had worked deeply together on at least one occasion that we know of in the book of Acts. So Paul has a fairly long-running relationship with Tychicus and thinks very highly of him. He's not just blowing smoke about uh, his friend here. And Paul wants the church in Ephesus to know Um, how he is, literally about my affairs. He wants the church in Ephesus to understand that even though he's in prison, he's been able to continue the work of the gospel. And then he ends with uh, encouragement and a final blessing, uh, peace, grace, and love. Uh, There is one question that I think might be asked about verse 24, though. Um, he, He says, make sure that you love with a love that's incorruptible. What are ways that we can corrupt our love Uh, and the first thing to answer that question is we need to remember the context he's talking about vertical love here although it can also apply to horizontal love. but he's talking about our love for God and our love for uh, our Lord Jesus Christ Um, so how do we corrupt our love for God and I would suggest there are four ways here's the first one we corrupt love through redefinition we redefine what it means to love somebody so that it's convenient to us that it's not sacrificial, and when we uh, redefine the love that we're called to in, in the gospel that God calls us to, uh, what we're saying to God is simply, I, I'm not going to do it your way, my way is better because I'm actually smarter than, uh, than you are. We may not say that out loud because we know that might sound a bit ridiculous, but we say that in our hearts, and, and that becomes a problem. You and I, I do this all the time, too. You can ask Jackie. We're constantly redefining how it is that we love God. And the way I love God is much better than the way you love it. It's much better than God's way that he could have called me to. Uh, We also, by the way, we redefine how we love each other. And that becomes a problem as well. The gospel calls us to love God and to do it sacrificially because he loved us sacrificially. And the gospel calls us to love others sacrificially as well. It's hard. It's hard, but, and that's why we keep trying to redefine love, and we need to remember that that's one way that we can corrupt our love. We also corrupt love by making it transactional. We, we literally, for those of you who are social scientists, you know that um, there's something called social exchange theory, where. The, the only reason you stay in most relationships uh, is uh, because of the perception of your profits that you're getting out of the relationship. Our, our brains have this way of, of having a running cost-benefit analysis of all of our relationships. And the ones we stay in are the ones that we feel like there's a positive balance in and the ones we tend to shy away from are the ones where there's a negative balance. In other words, uh, I'll love God as long as it's in my best interest. As long as there's a return on my investment, I will... Uh, love God. Uh, The third way that we corrupt love is is by making it conditional. Uh, As long as my terms are met in this contract, um, I will go ahead and love. Um, And and so we need to understand that that doesn't work either because that means that we're not, again, it's a way of getting out of sacrifice. We're not going to sacrifice. And again, that doesn't really work in a gospel context. Gospel starts with sacrifice, Christ on um, the church. And then the fourth way is that we corrupt love through dis- distraction, especially uh, in today's culture. Uh, the word incorruptible actually means in the Greek, focused and pure, undistracted. A- and we live in a world um, today that is not primarily of a world of focus. It's a world of distraction. Um, the-, the leadership guru Simon Senek says of Generation Z, Generation Z is not better than all other generations at multitasking, they're just more distracted than all other generations. And all of us, all the other generations, have started to fall into that trap as well over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. We live in a world of constant distractions, and I know some of those distractions are necessary. It's interesting, we talk about Jesus' ministry as a ministry of distraction, and, and that um, he did his best work when he was on his way somewhere and somebody would interrupt him and distract him and he would go off and do that and it would frustrate the disciples and that's and that's okay and there are distractions that are good and necessary but we have crossed a line with our distractions now it feels like it, it really and all the research shows us too we're hoping for distractions we want distractions again uh, Simon Sinek he talks about how uh, you know if if if, if we've gone 15 or 20 minutes without our phone dinging, um, we'll, text some, we'll text 10 people and just go hi, 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 and then hope that we get a ding back, because there's that ding and then the dopamine, and, we, you know, and, and now we don't, how many of you have ever been in a meeting, and like, you're five or six minutes into the meeting, and now you're, <clears throat> and then you start to do some no-look texting, which some of you are very good at. Yeah, <laughs> and then you hope for the buzzes or the dings, you know, because we want to be uh, distracted, and, and, and we can corrupt our love through distraction. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, who is um, a mid-century, last-century um, essayist, poet, and education historian, this is why I like to read her, because she's a historian about uh, education. Uh, she wrote this in 1941. The popular mind has grown so confused that it is no longer able to receive any statement of fact except as an expression of personal feeling. And she wrote this in the context of talking about how distracted we have become in 1941. I'm guessing it's become a little bit worse since then, with all the technology. Uh, What she's really saying is the popular mind has grown so confused because of all the distractions that we allow ourselves to be captivated by. There is an attack on our focus of things that are more important. And the primary attack, you need to understand, especially coming out of the last three weeks, that primary attack of distraction comes from Satan. He is a master of distraction. And in fact, he knows how to... He, so subtly and easily, he knows how to distract us. If, again, how many times have, has anybody who's been up here in the last three weeks, uh, Vermon, uh, Tyler, myself talked about Genesis 3 when, when the serpent goes to Eve and Adam and and what does he do he distracts them he gets them off their game. He, he gets them off he gets their focus off of their wonderful life and onto that tree and then onto the simple notion that maybe God doesn't have what's best for you in mind and then he tempts them with what I call the triad of temptation it, it's gonna it's gonna please your flesh it's gonna taste so good it's so beautiful to look at. So the flesh and the eyes, and then it's desired to make one wise. In other words, uh, it's desired uh, so that we can feel superior to everybody else. Pride. So the flesh, the eyes, and pride. Uh, John repeats that in 1 John chapter 2. He says, this is where all of these worldly problems come from. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So he's quoting out of... Genesis 3 there, those are the primary ways that Satan can distract us, and he does it in so many different ways, bringing pleasure, bringing glitz, and bringing ego, and arrogance, and pride. So that's the end of the uh, letter. What I want to do now is go through, and I know, when you speak, you're supposed to have three main points. I've got six main points. I'm sorry, so, you know, double your tithe today, okay, because you're getting, you know, anyway, um, kidding, uh, here you go. I want to take a section from each chapter because uh, this is kind of how we broke it down uh, at the lead team level when we started this uh, experience last, late last fall talking about Ephesians. We said there's, a, there's sort of a nexus of each of these chapters and we want to look at that. And there's one word to describe each. Gospel, one, transformation, wisdom, strength, and church. So uh, Ephesians, if you wanted six words to describe it, gospel, One, transformation, wisdom, strength, and church. So here's chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. That's the key. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance to the praise of his uh, glory. Uh, every person in Christ has an inheritance, whether somebody has written you into a will or not. You've been written into God's will and final trust, and that's, and that's good news. We have this inheritance of eternal life with Jesus because of Jesus, because of what he's done. And this inheritance, this, this salvation uh, from having to spend eternity in hell, but also being a part of the kingdom of God now. So this salvation um, is all according to God's will and God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's love, and yes, even, even God's choice. Paul says we are predestined for this inheritance. We were We were chosen for this gift. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news uh, is because there is really bad news, which we like to avoid and not talk about. But the bad news is that you and I were born into corruption and darkness. We were born into sin. Uh, We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And I know that's so hard. You look at that cute little baby. How could that little baby be a sinner? That little baby... Is a selfish, narcissistic little being. And those of you who are young parents, you happen to agree with this. So you see uh, human nature, biblical human nature, right in your cuddly little arms, okay? I, I know babies are cute and all that. I get, I get that most of the time. But we're. We aren't born with a clean slate. This whole idea of tabla rasa and then we make... Okay, so here you go. If we're all born with a clean slate and all of us have the opportunity to become uh, nothing but good, how come not one person has ever done that? Because of the nature of sin. It's called imputation. This has been imputed to us through Adam and Eve, the original sin. Thank you so much, Adam and Eve. I write them a thank you card all the time for this. We were born into a a state, a status of separation from God. God is holy, we are not. God cannot abide in what is not holy. But God has also provided a way to to make us holy, to make us righteous. That's the good news, the gospel, is that you and I can't do anything in and of ourselves to be able to save ourselves from this, this problem, this corruption, but Jesus has. Jesus has done it. He went to the cross, he was raised from the dead and we get to trade our separation and our corruption for his holiness and righteousness so we were imputed from Adam and Eve this nature of sin and now through Christ by embracing Christ we are imputed his righteousness and holiness and God sees us that way right now even though we don't behave like that all the time or even marginally we are seen right now by God as as holy and righteous if you are in Christ and that is wonderful news when we come to Jesus God no longer sees our sin but he sees Jesus we are in Christ which is the best place to be and then you move to chapter 2 verses 13 through 16 Paul writes but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. This idea of the two becoming one started in Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four, and you see it all the way through Scripture, that theme. It's expressed through marriage, it's expressed through the Jew and the Gentile coming together, it's expressed all the way through to Revelation. We have to understand that this idea of one is one of the most important biblical principles that we can possibly embrace because of the gospel. And and particularly here, Paul presents this idea that, that the fact that we were once far off from each other and from God includes the trouble that we cause because of our differences. We cause trouble because of our differences, right? We are far off, we are far off not only from God because of our sin, but we're far off from each other because we're different. We're different, and, and, and differences are a problem for us. Paul sees our differences through a gospel lens and sees gifts and talents. Ethnicities and cultures that enrich the body. He, he sees different passions and priorities. All of them, he sees all those differences as assets. But we treat our differences with contempt. We treat our differences as threats. We treat our, our differences as something to be used as leverage and pride over other people. And that's, that's terribly unfortunate. As a result... As a result, the law of God, the good law of God. Don't don't read into this passage anything that Paul might be saying negative about the law. He's not saying anything negative about God's law. He's saying uh, negative things about how we apply God's law. That's the problem here. God's law has often been used as a tool, unfortunately, in our antipathy regarding differences. Paul writes that the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, the good, holy law of God wonderful law of God has become a dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was never intended to be that way by God. God never intended the law to be used that way. It it was a way to help us understand what holiness looks like and that we should be striving for that, but that we could never do it without uh, God in our lives. But the problem with humans, fallen, corrupt humans, because of our hearts that are tainted with sin is that we always just slow down and think about this we always seem to be able to use rules and policy to divide rather than unite have you ever noticed that that's ultimately how we use rules and policy and and laws we, we think what's the first thing we, we need a regulation we need a law we need a policy we need a we need a rule we need a manual for everybody to read right we, 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 we need guidelines. No, we don't need guidelines. We need rules. We don't want anybody to have any wiggle room in this, okay? We need policies. And we think that those laws and regulations and policies and rules will solve the problem, but all it does is really create more problems. How many times have you gotten a memo at work? New policy, and then it has to be followed up with 14 more memos explaining how the first, is be, the first policy is being used incorrectly. I'm not saying we shouldn't have these things. I'm just saying our propensity is to mess things up. God's law is good, but humans stink at applying it. (laughs) It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. So it becomes a dividing wall of hostility rather than something that we can all share in common as the wisdom of God. That's the way the Jews used it against the Gentiles. But Paul now is saying and knows about something much bigger and more valuable than laws and policies and edicts and rules, and that's the brotherly love of the body of Christ. Uh, rules and policies and edicts simply have a way of eliciting suspicion and cynicism and mistrust. I, I, get, a, I get a rule or a policy, and the first thing I think is, is how, how... I'm suspicious, and I'm cynical about it, and, and how can I maneuver around this? Right? Okay. See, the goal is not unity. The goal, I'm sorry, the goal is unity. It's not conformity. The goal is unity. The goal is trust and not suspicion. It's, it's the body, not the parts. It's one, not me. And Paul knows that there's only one thing that makes this possible, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that we're all on the same level playing field. We need to get that down. We're all on the, Theologically, we're all on the same level playing field. And Christ has come and supplied us with the answer to that. It's not that we're better than anybody else. It's that we're not as good as God, and therefore God has come to make us righteous and holy like him. That's the gospel. We're in trouble without this grace and this forgiveness from God. And so the church needs to see itself as one. Uh, not because we're carbon copies of each other and not because we vote a particular way or have the same passion, and we shouldn't see ourselves as one just because we have differences, but rather in the midst of all of our differences, we all have Christ. Now jump over to chapter 4, starting in verse 17. I'll come back to 3. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of of impurity. Uh, That that, that described the first 27 years of my life. Right there. Paul Paul speaking directly uh, to me. But that's not the way you learned in Christ. And I'm still learning. We all are assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here you go, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off and put on, put off and put on, and it continues all the way up until we die, this physical life that we're living here on earth. It's, it's not just put off once and put on. Theologically, that's true. Once we embrace Christ, God sees us as having put off the old and put on the new. He sees Christ, but we still have to live this life, and so we are in this constant, constant putting off and putting on, and we need to be reminded of that day in and day out. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Don't just come and listen to us on Sunday. Preach it to yourself every single day. And we need this because, you know, frankly, human beings are, are obsessed about transforming their lives, aren't, aren't we? Aren't we obsessed about transform? Aren't we discontent with parts of our lives that we'd love to transform or most of our lives? I, I know that's true, we want to be someone else, we want to be somewhere else, we want to be with someone else, and we want to be doing something else. That's the general condition of virtually every person alive today, unfortunately. Everybody wants something in their life to change their weight, their height, good luck, education, age, hair, wisdom, comfort, pleasure, intellect. We want those things to change. And we'll, here you go, here's what's really funny. We'll spend huge amounts of money in order to make that happen, won't we? If we can write a check for that transformation, we are all in, right? We'll we'll, uh, get a, a home equity loan if we don't have the cash on hand. We'll do whatever we can. But here's two things that we rarely do for transformation. Rarely are we willing to work really hard at it, and rarely do we realize that true godly transformation comes not from ourselves but from Christ. It is thoroughly unreasonable to assume that we will experience sustainable transformation without Christ and without some sacrifice and hard work. We need to all be involved in this. And here you go, we're not going to end up on the cover of a magazine, so just forget about that. That's part of our problem. But with God transforming us, we will live a life that Paul says in every one of his letters is, is worthy of the calling of the gospel. That's what he's calling us to, live a life that's worthy of the calling of the gospel. Chapter 4 is all about this transformation, or as Paul describes it here, the put-ons and put-offs of the life in Christ. Put off the old self, put on the new self, put off corruption and deception, put on holiness, put off impurity, put on righteousness, put off foolishness, put on wisdom, put off darkness, put on light, and so on down the line. And remember, How many times did we say this during the last half of Ephesians? Everything that God calls us to is always better than what he's calling us away from. He's never just calling us away from something. He's never calling us just away from an addiction, away from a sin, away from a way of thinking that's destructive. He's never just calling us away from something. He's always calling us to something that's much, much better. That's so important to understand. It's not a matter of stopping. It's a matter of, of starting with God. And then chapter 5, this is just, for me personally, this is like the wheelhouse uh, paragraph in Ephesians. It's 515 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk. That's an ancient Greek colloquialism for how you live your life. Look carefully then at how you live your life, not as unwise, not as a foolish person, but as a wise person. We need wisdom to be able to navigate our way through this dark world, this sinful world, which is what he says in verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The wise person seeks after God's will and adapts their life to God's will. The foolish person is the one who's seeking after their own will and expecting everybody else to adapt to their will. That's the fool. And I know that seems wise, especially in our world, We're told in the world that's what wisdom is, get everybody to conform to you, but that's what foolishness is because it never satisfies and it only frustrates. Paul says that the wise person is the one who seeks the will of the Lord, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. If you're living your life worshiping anything other than God, under the influence of anything other than God, whether it's wine or vodka or whether it's... It's some other substance or whether it's wealth or status or, or sex, what, whatever it is. And, and here's what's hard, too, because it's not that those things are necessarily bad. That's where we get so confused. Th- th- these are not necessarily bad things. But when we, when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, which we all do in our lives, we take worldly things that are good and make them ultimate, then they become bad things because we're worshiping them and not the Creator. We're worshiping that which has been created. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't live your life under the influence of anything except for the Holy Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that mutual submission. And Remember we talked about how mutual does not mean same. We're all supposed to submit, but that submission is going to look different depending on our role, depending on our context. So mutual is not the same, but all of us do need to submit. And and again, that's a challenge, but that's what we're called to. And then Paul goes on to talk about marriage and kids and and work within this context of mutual but not same uh, submission. And and just to give you an idea of of what Paul is driving at, I, I love this quote from Tim Keller, on marriage. He, he wrote this in his marriage book. Most people believe that marriage is a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice. How wrong they are. God designed marriage to be mutually fulfilling through mutual sacrifice. And, and I would say that could be true for all of our uh, relationships. And then you look at chapter 6. I'm just going to read uh, verse 10. We just came out of this section. Uh, so this should be Uh, fairly fresh in our minds paul writes finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might why why be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might why is it all about jesus because he says later on in verse 12 he says our battle is not against flesh and blood but it's against the principalities and the powers the cosmic forces of darkness that's why we need jesus This is is also a key part of this book. Uh, We constantly desire and chase after worldly solutions to spiritual problems. It doesn't work. I know it looks like it could work. And in theory, it can work. In the abstract, it's going to work. The way we're going to do it, it's going to work. Because the other people that tried it, they didn't do it the way I'm going to do it. All of those things we get deceived by. And it just doesn't, it just does not work. It's the idea that um, all of us have physical needs, and we satisfy those through food and clothing and shelter. All of us have relational needs, and we satisfy that with community and friends and family and, and, and sometimes marriage. And then all of us have what's called a crucial need. And that need, that crucial need can only be satisfied by God But what we do, what I did for 27 years, is I tried to take physical things that were provided for my physical needs and my relational needs and tried to fill that crucial need with those things, and it did not work, it does not work. It's the same thing that happens with these problems in our world. We don't realize that at its root, at every one of these problems, our economy, our debt, uh, our political, every one of them at root is a spiritual problem. But we constantly struggle to believe that this is really a spiritual war that's going on. If we could just elect the right person, if we could just get the right laws and rules passed, if we could just enforce them, if we could just do this, if we could just do that, if we could just spend a little bit less money and make the math work. And we don't know, the problem is we don't know we're in a war. (laughs) You understand this basic fact, right? If you don't know you're in a war, you've already lost. You understand that, right? I remember watching a volleyball game once, pretty important volleyball game, and, and I watched one team walk onto the floor. They walked on the floor with the attitude that the game was already over, they had already won, and that the other team, when they saw them, was just going to fall over on the floor and let them win. They literally walked out there with that attitude. And everything on paper said they should have won. They were, they were the team that could not be beat. They didn't know they were in a war. And by the time they finally woke up, it was too late, and they lost a best-of-five match in three games. They got blown out. They didn't know. How do you win when you don't even know you're in a war? Nobody told the other team, hey, there isn't a game. They thought there was a game, and they crushed this team. Satan knows. He knows that this is a war. And if we don't know, we're doomed. We're going to be crushed. Satan, if you're still... How many of... All three of... I, I will finish a sentence eventually. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> little worked up. Vermon gets up here. I didn't coach him. Vermont doesn't need me to coach him. He, he, he's, he's much better at this than I am. And what does he say? He says, look... I believe there's a Satan. Scripture says it. I know most people don't believe it even in the church, but there is a Satan and there is a real war. He said it. What did Tyler say last week? There is a Satan. There is a spiritual. He said, you know why? I said it also two weeks ago. You know why we say this so much as pastors? Because we're constantly told by people in the church, not outside the church, people in the church, you don't really believe that, do you? Well, if I had known that you believe that, I wouldn't have attended this church. We get that all the time. People don't believe this. Yes, I believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God, but this stuff here, science has taken care of that. No. no. Here you go. Satan loves it that you think there's no war going on. Satan loves it when you think that there's a worldly answer to these problems. He loves that. And I'm sorry, but every time this comes up, I can't help but think of Kaiser Soze. The greatest trick the devil ever played was making us believe that he didn't exist. By the way, Kaiser Soze doesn't even exist. <laughs> he's a character in a movie. Isn't that ironic? And the one way that we prove that we don't believe Satan is real is all the times that you and I want to provide worldly answers and solutions to the wickedness, the injustices, and the problems that essentially, at root, he's caused. We lose. But the truth is, What Paul is saying here is that we have power. We have power. We have the power to withstand, to stand firm against these attacks and schemes. So when are we going to take off the rose-colored glasses and start engaging? Put on the armor of God and stand. Stand in his truth. Stand in his righteousness. Stand in his peace, his faith, his word, his holiness, his spirit, and pray. And then chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Paul writes, Of this gospel, of this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. That's a great story in the book of Acts. where uh, Where Saul was made a minister by the resurrected risen Lord Jesus himself. He was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's a Jew going to the Gentiles. He's a a Christian killer, a murderer, going to the Gentiles and preaching this good news. This is amazing. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plain mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, here you go, through the church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That eternal purpose was already mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God already had this figured out. In Genesis chapter 3. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Which is your glory. Uh, there's an iconic passage in Acts chapter 2 about the church. Some of you know it. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. How many ministries have been have been named uh, 242? I'm a part of the 242 ministry. It's that famous passage about... Um, the community of the church and what the early church did. According to that passage, the early church devoted themselves to four things. That was uh, the teaching. So that would be uh, the teaching of the Old Testament prophets and the apostles, the apostles' teaching. So kind of like what we do here on Sunday mornings and on, on Wednesday nights. Um, the fellowship, the first century definition of which always included a table with food and, and beverage gathering around a table, the breaking of bread, which is communion, we do that every Sunday as well, and prayers. And that paragraph in Acts chapter 2 also mentions that the early church was generous and they praised God and their numbers increased as well. And now consider with that as the context what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 3. You might say he's taking that larger focus and narrowing it down a little bit. It's not that we don't continue Uh, with the teaching and the fellowship and the communion and the prayers. It's not that. They're still essential. But he narrows in his focus on the gospel, the mystery of God, which has now been revealed to us. It's no longer a mystery to us. He says the gospel being proclaimed. That's what we must be about in word and in deed. It's not enough just on Sundays. It needs to be proclaimed through our lives. Throughout the week, in everything that we do, and he says this gospel is a great gift. It was a gift that was bestowed on him. He wasn't. Was was Paul looking for Jesus on that road to Damascus? No, he was. I, I'm I'm searching for God. Paul wasn't even searching for God. God, in His grace and mercy and love, reached down to him, and it was probably a little bit uncomfortable. He got knocked off his ride and was blinded. It was very uncomfortable. And then he suffered for his faith and and was executed. It was a bit uncomfortable, yet he says this was a gift. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to him because it has power. The power is such that it often settles really on the weak and the desperate. That's one of the biggest challenges we have in a context like this because most of us don't see ourselves as weak and desperate. We're strong. We're capable. We're high-capacity people. And so it's even harder for us to understand what a great gift this gospel is. But Paul describes himself as weak. And understand he was not a weak human. Paul would have fit right in 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 Arcadia. He would have fit right in with us because he was smart, he was sharp, he was hard work. He was he was a high capacity. He was the most high capacity person in a group of high capacity people. He had an incredible resume, reputation, and personality. But his weakness was in the fact that he had placed his trust in himself and not in God. That's his weakness. That's our weakness too. Every one of us. My greatest weakness is when I don't believe the gospel. My greatest we- When I sin, it's because I don't, believe, I don't believe the good news of Jesus Christ. His strength and his power, Paul's, only came through the resurrected Christ when his life was invaded by him. And this gospel given to us by grace is then to be proclaimed and passed on again in word and deed so that everyone might come to understand this mystery and have that mystery revealed to them, have the Holy Spirit open their eyes. And it's specifically through the church that God has designed this. When a person says, I don't need a church to be a Christian, they are specifically telling God that the way he's designed this is wrong and they know better. That might be a problem. That's sarcasm, by the way, in case you missed that, okay? This is our call to proclaim the gospel, and we're to do it with boldness and confidence, not in ourselves, but in him who saves and sanctifies and justifies, and it is going to be hard, and we're going to suffer for it, so we should not lose heart. Paul says here, don't lose heart in this process. He says it also in Galatians, don't lose heart, but in due time, in the proper time, he says, in God's time. Your reward will be there, and your war reward will be more than sufficient. So there you have it, the book of Ephesians, gospel, one, transfer, transformation, wisdom, strength, and church. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we, we are blessed to be a part of, of what you have done and what you are doing and especially of what you're going to do. We look forward to that because that is ultimately our inheritance in eternity. God, help us to get there and help us to, as Paul says, help us to finish strong. Help us by the power of your spirit, the strength of your resurrected son, and we pray that in his name.